the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Brad Manera is the senior historian and curator of the Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park in Sydney. Brad has been described by RSL New South Wales as a war history guru. His lifelong passion for military history and battlefield archaeology has transcended both pastime and also vocation. His career began at the Western Australian Museum and has included foundation curatorial work for the National Museum of Australia, gallery development at the Australian War Memorial and the World Heritage Listing Submission for the Hyde Park Barracks Museum. He's a keen public historian and has led battlefield tours around the world and featured in a range of documentaries. He was the historian for the award-winning documentary Gallipoli, The Frontline Experience from 2005 by Tolga Ornek. Brad advised on events, weapons, uniforms and sets. He was also the historian for Whaler, The Great Australian Warhorse. His latest book, In That Rich Earth from 2020, is a study of the battlefields on which men and women of New South Wales have served from colonial times to the present. One account is the extraordinary story of 22-year-old pilot Francis Mathers from Pagewood in Sydney. Hear how Frank's courage and skill earned him the extremely rare Conspicuous Gallantry Medal only nine weeks before his body was recovered from a Halifax bomber crash over 70 years ago. For many years, Brad has also been leading tours to the places where Australian history was made. Since attending the 75th anniversary of the Anzac landing with the last surviving Anzacs, he has been a frequent visitor to Gallipoli. The Anzac Memorial stands proudly as one of New South Wales's most significant cultural and commemorative institutions, continuing in its original purpose as a war memorial and as a place of commemoration, remembrance, education and reflection. The Anzac Memorial holds a significant historical collection of approximately 7,000 objects that tell the personal stories of service personnel and their families. The collection includes the Heritage Building and its sculptures, as well as objects of material culture such as medals, badges, uniforms, field equipment, photographs, documents, manuscripts and framed works and books. Once again, we are still at the Hyde Park Anzac War Memorial, and this is, I've said it before, this is a facility that you've got to find some time to visit. What you find here is just unbelievable, and a record of what has happened with New South Wales personnel, male and female, across the many wars that we have been involved in and peacekeeping forces. And it is with a great pleasure, you've heard his introduction, to be able to talk with the senior historian and curator, Brad Manera. G'day, Brad. G'day, Gareth. How are you going? I'm well. Where did your interest in military history start? Military history. Um, Look, I I guess growing up in the 1960s, the Second World War veterans, um, it was far enough away for them to 
get reflective uh, and 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 enjoy their reunions. And I was very privileged to uh, spend a lot of time with my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, and um, mum's dad flew in the RAAF. So, uh, you know, there was an obvious association with the RAAF. He'd flown with 73 Squadron in, in 43, 14 Squadron in 44, and deployed to New Guinea with 7 Squadron and Beauforts in 45. You've, you talk about, or I've read, you, you have the, a term military history and you've got a term battlefield archaeology. What's the difference between the two? Oh, look, I, 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 I don't really like the idea of military history uh, because I feel that it's Australian social history in a time of war. Right. And so I think that um, really my interest grew out of the impact of war on people's lives. You know, um, why was it important for Grandad and his mates to sit around the piano on a Saturday evening and sing songs like uh, Bluebirds Over the White Cliffs of Dover when they all flew in the Pacific? You know, none of them saw the White Cliffs of Dover, but it was, it was that period in their lives that was so extraordinarily important to them. So, you know, I guess um, my interest, rather than being uh, one uh, focusing on generals and uh, strategy and tactics, it's more uh, the interest has been that of the personal experience of of participants. Um, But when I think about battlefield archaeology, it's been a real privilege to take veterans and also high school students to old battlefields, to the places on which those events occurred and inviting them to walk the ground and think about what it must have been like to have been on that place 50 years ago, Mm. 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And so um, I guess that's what I think about when it, in regard to battlefield archaeology, just getting um, people to... Visit the site. Um, you know, I, I mean, Peter Stanley uh, uh, wrote a book um, some years ago about uh, historians, uh, and, and he used a, a phrase that's been around forever: that uh, one of the tools that a historian needs is a stout pair of boots. Uh, <laughs> this idea that walking the ground is 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 very important to us, yeah. and and the, and I guess that's where where the battlefield archaeology comes from. We'll come back to where you got started in just a moment, but when you are asked to advise on uh, Whaler, the great Australian warhorse, and and Gallipoli, the film documentary. Do you try and persuade the producers and directors of both of those films that that is the aspect you should be looking at rather than a particular event or a particular person? Is that part of your brief or...? Oh, most definitely. Uh, You know, I think that uh, we don't give enough credit to the impact that Australian historians have had on the way history is written. People like Charles Edwin Woodrow Bean wrote an everyman account of the Great War and since then generations of historians have been copying his perspective and you know through to great British historians like Anthony Beaver um, they are taking a much broader look at uh, the way history is written than occurred prior to Bean's time and so um, you know there are some really fine military histories around and if you need the detail the hour by hour accounts then read the book Mm. but if you're 
thinking about uh, the individuals involved, then that's where I think um, the visual media can really play a major role. Um, you know, when we've got a, a camera sweeping over the remains of the trenches at mm. Anzac or, uh, uh, you know, looking from the start line at Bullecourt at the, uh, mm. the, uh, the ridge line in the distance or, or just getting a sense of um, listening to a veteran describe the Battle of Nui Lai in 1971. You know, uh, it, it's, it's not going to be the sort of thing that necessarily belongs in a documented history but what it does do is give the reader a really engaging sense of empathy with those who were there mm. only because of the bias of me holding a microphone but i've always found that an audio uh, record when i'm talking to a veteran or talking to someone who has been in a tragic event that that sound in the voice that soul in the voice comes out to the listener and they can get a perspective which a visual might detract from. Does that make any sense to you? Oh, very much so. And, uh, you know, as soon as you said that, uh, I recall an interview I did with a, a wonderful gentleman who tragically died a few years ago, Ray Parry. As a teenager, he'd served behind Japanese lines with Number 2 Independent Company on Timor, mentioned in dispatches uh, in New Guinea, um, re-enlisted for the Korean War and uh, was decorated with the Military Medal for Bravery in the Field at uh, the Battle of Kapyong, and, uh, but then also took command of, of a platoon during the Battle of Mariang San and just... I don't know what possessed him, but we were talking about Mariang San and he walked us through this extraordinary battle. Um, you know, General Castles describes it as one of the finest uh, battalion actions in British military history. But at the end of the interview, Ray's gaze disappeared into a place that I'll never visit. And he just said more to himself than to the rest of us, Mariang San finished me. And his shoulders just slumped ever so much. Mm. And uh, it was, yeah, there was a, a shadow came over his face that we don't know where from. But it was just a, one of those extraordinary moments that, uh, yeah. uh, you know, hearing, hearing a veteran describe the impact of that battle on him. And it's, you know, I mean, Bob O'Neill has written a, a wonderful history of Australia's uh, role in the Korean War and, and a very detailed account of how... Sir Francis Hassett fought the Battle of, of Mariang San, but, but, but to hear former Sergeant Ray Parry say that battle finished Finish him. me. And again, that's the voice. Yeah. Makes an impact. Absolutely. Um, Western Australian Museum is where you start. I want to talk about Brad Manera for a moment, <laughs> just, just to put you in perspective from our friend who's listening to you right now. How did you start? Why did you start in museums? And how did you get into the museum? Yeah, look, I, it was luck in my case. Um, I, I, again, very fortunate in, in, in growing up in a family that were too miserable to die. They just hung around <laughs> and told outrageous stories. And, uh, and, and so they were there when great events occurred. And the, one of the terrific things, I suppose, about Australia is that 
those that made our history are either still with us or only one or two generations dead. And so um, it's it's still very, very fresh. Um, you know, my great auntie Evelyn pegged out at 107, uh, but she was the, the wife of the first member for the Kimberley. Um, and so, you know, she was she was in the Kimberley when when the, the last of the of the well documented massacres of Indigenous people occurred in that place. And you know, so so these things, you know, she used to say, look, it's not history while I'm still alive, it's memory. Um, and so, you know, when you've got those sort of people around and uh, as I say, growing up in my grandparents' place, you know, you only had to open one or two drawers and if there wasn't a set of false teeth there, then there was a clip of Japanese ammunition or a, a set of somebody's medals. And, um, you it know, was in that, your blood. That, that, it was, yeah, let me just take, pick up that point though, what she said. Uh, it, it isn't history, for me it's memory. Yes, yes. As you're an historian, as an historian, would you not like that to be the way we look at our own history? It's it's memory. You want to make that that record a memory rather than a history? It's, it's a really interesting and complex question. Um, you know, um, I guess we're frequently asked about the Second World War and, and, and how to, well, indeed, um, more broadly, uh, Australians at war and, and, and how we should interpret that. And uh, I think my attitude is that everybody who has been in that situation has their own story. And so it's, it's the role of the military is, uh, you know, our, our military historians uh, is to document in, in, the, in the, the printed word that takes us through the course of wars, the role of Australians have played. But when it comes to personal stories, then individuals have got to own that. And there's no consistency in the way they remembered Mm. their Mm. war. And so if we can show a few personal stories, all of them different, then our visitors get a chance to say, my story is as valid as theirs. Yeah. And uh, that there isn't a war story or a veteran's perspective. Uh, every veteran has their own perspective. Let me give you an example uh, for me personally. Sure. Uh, I put on Facebook when the 80th anniversary of the fall of Singapore came up. I posed the question, which has been posed by a number of historians, Bennett, hero or coward? Hero or deserter? Mm. And wrote the story trying to be see both sides, put it up on Facebook on three or four different sites and the numbers of responses of people who were either had a relative there or run who died there came up taking either side and it was for them a memory. It wasn't history. It was something that they'd been part of or their family had been yeah. part of. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, what you're doing here is, is doing exactly that. Look, I, I remember talking to an old bloke named Jim Dory uh, in WA, second, fourth machine gunner, shot through both knees. He was a great Australian footballer uh, in, the, uh, in the 1930s and early 40s. Uh, obviously, as soon as he saw just how badly injured he was, he realised his football career was, was over. Um, and by the time he had recovered, um, he w- was well enough to be sent to work. He was sent to Japan with J-Force, worked as a slave labourer, 
uh, in Japan, took the punishment for a bloke that he didn't think could cope with it. So extraordinarily brave, brutally treated by the Japanese. Um, and many, my grandfather amongst them, went to their graves hating the Japanese because of the memories of the Second World War. And yet, talk to Jim about his war. I said, you know, what did you, know, what did you do in the war, Jim? And his response was, I was the first Australian to work for Mitsubishi. And uh, so, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's absolutely no consistency yeah. in, in the way the war is remembered. Isn't history wonderful? Mm, <laughs> However mm, how mm. you wanted to find it. I, I'd like to talk about the Hyde Park Barracks Museum just for a moment because you were involved in uh, getting that heritage listing for that. What was involved in doing that? How did you, what did you have to go through? They at the time there was a great deal of interest in from the United Nations from UNESCO uh, in looking at um, cultural heritage sites, built heritage sites in the southern hemisphere. Um, the UNESCO World Heritage Heritage List is dominated by built heritage sites in the northern hemisphere, castles, that sort of thing in uh, in Europe and and uh, and Asia. Um, the southern hemisphere is dominated by uh, natural history. And so um, they were looking for um, sites of built heritage in the southern hemisphere and they were also particularly interested at that time in mass movement of people and so really the the credit must go to professor hamish maxwell stewart from uh, then from university of, of tasmania uh now university of new england um and the work that he had done in looking at the mass movement of people from around the British Empire to the Australian colonies. Over 160,000 people transported to the Australian colonies between 1788 and 1868. And uh, so, you know, um, the, the slave ports in West Africa had just been added to the World Heritage List. They were looking for examples in a similar vein and and uh so the you know and, and hamish's work on transportation of imperial convicts to australia uh slotted into that and hamish and i had worked together on and off for, mm. for years and uh we both share a, a, a similar sense of humor and um and a fascination with single malt but um uh so as a result he uh uh you know th they they contacted the both of us to to draft up what we thought could possibly be uh, a range of sites around Australia. We decided a serial listing was appropriate because every colony's convict experience was quite different yes. uh, from my home state in Western Australia to, to that of, of, of uh, Norfolk Island, for example, or to sure. Van Diemen's Land or, or, or New South Wales. So, so we ended up uh, being able to add uh, 11 uh, sites in the serial listing. One of and, which uh, was the Hyde Park Barracks. Yeah, look, that was, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's such um, a complete example uh, of, a, of a workstation, which, you do know... Do enough Australians visit our museums, do you think? Could we in, in some way, shape or form encourage more a visit? Because that's a part of creating memories. I, look, I think museums have got to be a reflection of the community that they represent and Australians would rather go to the footy. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, at the moment uh, when you look at government spending, it's certainly directed towards sports stadiums rather than museums. Um, and uh, I, look, 
that's I, I guess they've they've tested the uh, uh, the public attitude to to history and uh, and so you know museums are always going to come second best mm. uh, in that relationship. I, I mean, I, I wish it was the other way around because I of your know, passion. Yeah. I, I was always the last kid picked for the footy team at uh, <laughs> at school, but that was. Um, you know. oh, well, I'm glad you were the last pick, otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. I do want to talk about the memorial in just a moment, but I want to talk about your work with Gallipoli, the film documentary, and also Walla, the great Australian war horse, because that was great. I didn't realise that you'd been involved in that. No wonder it was so good. Um, so how did you get involved, and, and what kinds of things were you asked to do, and what did you correct? Um, well, with Gallipoli was was done by uh, a Turkish film director named Tolga Runek uh, back in 2004. Um, obviously, he was he was building to the 90th anniversary of of the campaign. Um, he had been intrigued by the Gallipoli story, uh, dating back to when he made a remarkable documentary about Mustafa Kemal. Ataturk, and um, kept coming across um, stories about Gallipoli because that was, I guess, how the Turks learned about Mustafa Kemal as commander of the Ottoman 19th Division on the peninsula, and um, and so he'd always wanted to to study Gallipoli, and uh, so, but his research kept hitting um, brick walls. Uh, it's there is a great deal of um, politics in the way the campaign is remembered. And, of course, in a lot of country, I mean, Turkey's a classic case where so much detailed information about the campaign gets lost because that war is immediately followed by um, their independence war. And so we see that so frequently when a country suffers multiple wars back to back, so much information yeah, sure. is lost. And so, you know, he was trying to create this documentary. He couldn't find the sources in, in Turkey. Um, the British didn't have a great deal of interest. <laughs> British historians obviously focused particularly on, on the Western Front. Um, um, uh, but then he came to Australia because he'd, he'd met a few Aussies doing battlefield tours. And he came to Australia and, and uh, you know, he kept saying, wherever I go in Australia, I ask about Gallipoli. And somebody's, somebody will tell me, oh, look, um, uh, yeah, I've got this, this and this body of information. Uh, you better come home and have a beer or, you know, you better come home and have a meal. And uh, so he, he put on several kilos when he came to Australia. But he just... He loved it. He found the Australian War Memorial was absolutely enthusiastic. Uh, Major General Steve Gower was the director at that time. And um, Steve fell in love with the project. And so he gave it his full support. Uh, I was on the military history team at the memorial at the time. But I also have a fairly substantial personal collection dealing with Western Australians uh, at, at Gallipoli. And so Tolga and his film crew came back to my place and, uh, you know, there were, you know, there are guns in the, in, the, in the safe and uniforms on mannequins around the house. And, you know, it's a very eclectic sort I'd of... I'd love to visit your house one day. <laughs> yeah. And um, so Tolga said, you know, what can we do? And, uh, and I said, well, look, really, the sky's the limit. You know, what, uh, it depends entirely on your budget. And um, fortunately, his father was head of the, of the Turkish Navy at the time. And so we were able to get licenses. We, we 
purchased 303s in Australia, shipped them to Turkey. Uh, the the, uh, the the Turkish um, uh, military got, got involved. They provided extras. Um, and so I went over there and lived for a couple of months um, and, and we, we created the sets. Um, and uh, we, you know, I worked with the Turkish military um, sort of trying to get them to... Uh, uh, teach them to act like Australians might have acted in 1915 and it was it was a fascinating project but you know very much um, uh, the thing that Tolga found moving was that by coming to Australia and because the AIF was such a literate army that there were personal accounts yeah and uh, and so that inspired him to then go back to Turkey and do an extraordinary sweep uh, of of Turkish sources, and he came up with a remarkable number of uh, recorded accounts by Ottoman personnel. You know, we're talking about the Ottoman Fifth Field Army on the, that that held the peninsula had a less than five percent literacy rate. So finding accounts by uh, Turkish defenders was a remarkable thing. And so he put all this information together, photographs and so on, and then at the end of the documentary donated them all to the Australian War Memorial. So we got him an Order of Australia for it. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it, it really enhanced our understanding of the campaign yeah. and gave us multiple perspectives. I mean, there were 16 historians on the project and... Um, uh, you know, 16 Do- different points of view, no doubt. Absolutely, indeed. I mean, it's, it was at this stage that Dr Robert Nichols, a great military history editor based in Canberra, um, came up with the collective noun for a group of historians. He decided that, that the collective noun for a group of historians was an argument. And, uh, <laughs> so, uh, ah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, all right. Whaler, the great Australian war horse. The- Yes, um, I met the team at Margot Films uh, working on uh, another documentary, and I can't remember what it was at the time. Um, but uh, they, um, you know, we, we, we'd worked together, and they they knew that I had a, a rather obsessive interest in uh, Australian and particularly Western Australian military history, and uh, so you know they had been uh, finding that wherever they went. Um, in uh, they they were doing a, a documentary in um, uh, in the Pilbara, and all of the, the 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 property they were working on, all the locals wanted to talk about was the fact that they had provided horses for mm. the 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 AIF, and uh, so Margot Films decided that there was uh, this was something that they they would like to investigate. Um, they contacted me, and uh, so you know we, we we sat in a room for. For two days, and uh, and I just you know, gave them the information. Basically, talked through uh, accounts of some of the old light horsemen that were around yeah. when I was a kid, and 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 more generally the history of Australian mounted troops. And they said, yes, definitely, we've got enough information here to make a a, a documentary, and oh, uh, that's where it went. Fantastic. I do want to talk specifically about a couple of exhibits here at the War Memorial, but I'd like to talk about the War Memorial first. Mm. But before I do that, even. Um, knowing that we were going to do this today, uh, when Brad arrived, he just arrived in a white shirt and pants and he had a back sack on his thing and a big box and we'll talk about that box in a moment. But then he got started to get dressed. He put a tie on, then he put a tie pin on 
button and the, the tie happens to have a plane on it and the pin happens to have a plane on it as well. Would you like to tell, tell us why, what tie you're wearing and what the tie pin is? Well, indeed, the, uh, this was a gift from, from my colleagues um, because we, uh, uh, we, we mounted an exhibition for the centenary of the Royal Australian Air Force. And so the, the, the tie is, is decorated with uh, fighters. Uh, they look like Spitfires, uh, single-engine monoplanes, uh, and, and likewise the, the tie pin uh, was, uh, was purchased for me by my, uh, our researcher, Dr Katie Gilchrist, from the Imperial War Museum in, in Britain and presented to me for the, uh, okay. our, our right. curating their, we'll, their centenary exhibition. We'll come back to that, Brad, if you <laughs> yeah. had your time all over again. And if you don't want to offend anyone, don't answer the question, but Army, Air Force or Navy, if you had to join up, which would you join and why? Oh, well, look, in, in my case, I, you know, back in the late 1970s, I tried to join the Army, but I'm losing my sight, so, so I wasn't, uh, wasn't physically able to, to join up. I was uh, I just interested in the stories of infantry soldiers and, yeah. and, uh, and mounted soldiers. Um, well, if you're losing your sight, armoured, you wouldn't so get into the Air Force either, so no, we'll leave no, in, indeed, indeed. Okay, so, uh, a soldier set this stone, a citizen set this stone are two plaques with those words engraved on them. What do they mean? What are they all about? Oh, look, you know, yeah, they're they're fascinating, aren't they? You know, I think it's really a, an enormous statement. Uh, they're the foundation stones for the Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park, and and it is the Anzac spelt uppercase A and lowercase. NZAC. It is not a memorial to the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. It's a memorial to the men and women who called themselves Anzacs. Uh, this is a, a, a collective term that Australians gave themselves during the Great War prior to the adoption in late 1917 and through 1918 of the term digger. Uh, the Australian soldiers after the Gallipoli campaign called themselves Anzacs. And so the Anzac Memorial is a memorial to the men and women from New South Wales who served in the AIF and called themselves Anzacs. And uh, the community was grieving during and in the decades that followed the war. You know, how does a community the size of, of, of Sydney at that time cope with the thought that 130,000 of its young men and women have served overseas... Uh, and that some twenty to twenty five thousand of them are never going to come home, mm. and so the community was grieving. Uh, they decided there were all of those community memorials in in country towns uh, in in city suburbs needed to be uh, introduced by a state memorial, each of the states. Uh, did made their own state memorial, and um, you know um, the, the the tragedy of federation was so close to the Great mm. War. You know, and as a Western Australian, I hope we'll get our independence in my lifetime. But you know, my home state uh, turned our botanic gardens into its war memorial at Kings Park. Uh, the Victorians built a very classical shrine on the outskirts of Melbourne. Sydney couldn't make up its mind, and so uh, we ended up with uh, the cenotaph in Martin Place as the official location for ceremony and the Anzac Memorial here in Hyde Park, a place of silent contemplation uh, in a park setting yeah. where people who would never get to visit their sons and daughters' graves on the other side of the world or indeed maybe never know where their sons and daughters were buried because so many of them lie in un unmarked graves um, 
could have somewhere to contemplate. Mm. And uh, and so that was the idea behind the memorial in Hyde Park. And um, it took a good 15 years to raise the money uh, to build the memorial. And the foundation stones were laid in 1932. And I think it's a remarkable statement uh, of collective recognition of grief because as you've just said one stone says a citizen laid this stone the other a soldier well the citizen was the premier of new south wales but you don't see sir bertrand stevens name on the memorial he just says i'm a citizen and the soldier was the governor sir philip game but you don't see sir philip game's name on that thing he's just a soldier so Um, that anonymity is most important not anonymity but that collectiveness of the words citizen and soldier. Most definitely. I think that that's a really uh, important aspect that these people were saying, we share a collective grief. And, uh, I mean, that tradition of covering your medals, likewise, um, you know, we see the Americans on on their memorial days and they put their hand on their heart. And I've noticed a few uh, ill-informed Australians beginning to do that. Um that was never an Australian tradition. What the tradition was, was that veterans covered their medals or their medal groups because they felt that they wanted a collective recognition of service. Uh, It occurred at a remembrance ceremony in Victoria in the years shortly after the war. There were two Victoria Cross winners um, participating in this memorial ceremony to a colleague who had died and they took their hats off and they covered their Victoria Cross of the medals that they were Mm. wearing to say, you know, yes, I got a Victoria Cross. This bloke didn't, but we all survived the trenches Mm. or we all waded ashore at Anzac. And and so it was that that collective um, Mm. and shared recognition of service. Um, And, you know, so uh, our guides here at the Anzac Memorial uh, make a point during the, the playing of the last post of covering their medals or their ribbons. It's 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 just it's a continuation of this recognition right. that that they are all all of their service is valid. So those two stones, the fact that I didn't realise how important I was going to bring it up when I brought them up. Those two stones, citizen and soldier, they're two very important uh, icons of the cenotaph of the. Uh, Memorial. I think I think icon is 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 a very appropriate term for them. And the other thing is the date on which they were dedicated. Thirty two. Thirty four. Thirty four. No, no, no. Nineteen thirty two. You're spot on. Yeah. Um, but it's the nineteenth of July. Um, the nineteenth of July is the anniversary of the Battle of Fromel. Fromel will never be a battle honour for Australians because it was an absolute disaster from start to finish. But a third of those in the attacking force, a third of those killed or injured that day were from New South Wales, from the New South Wales raised 14th Brigade. And from Els will never be a battle honour, but it's remembered on those stones because that's the date. Everybody back in the 1930s who walked past those stones recognised that date, 19th of July, 5,533 Australians killed or injured in 24 hours. Listening to Brad as you are right now, if you're an historian or have an interest in history and you're in the RAAF or wherever you are, even if you're not in a defence, if you're a teacher, if you're a student, if you're a parent, I want to urge you most sincerely to take the time, wherever you live in Australia, you have your own memorials in Western Australia, in Victoria, in Queensland, but to take the time to come to the Anzac Memorial here in Hyde Park And if you do, 
take the time to try and get to meet Brad. <laughs> don't smile. Don't laugh, Brad. I mean this. Your passion, your knowledge and your interest in history is quite extraordinary and quite contagious. So take the time to seek out Brad because he's now going to talk about two exhibits or tell us how he came about two exhibits that are here in the memorial. One of them is the has a lot to do with a man called Arthur Robinson, and the other one is the compendium commemorate the what was the exhibition? Yeah, it's a oh, it's a, the conspicuous gallantry. Conspicuous medal. gallantry one. Yeah, What's that exhibit? Yeah. How did you mm. get it? What's it all about? Look, uh, we have had a remarkable level of support from the community um, since we've since we opened, and and uh, you know you just. It's really humbling when a family says we would like you to be the custodian of our family treasures um, relating to their war service. And, um, you know, on the weekend, Janet Robinson, my next door neighbour, um, knocked on the door and said, look, um, remember that article you wrote about uh, Uncle Arthur? Uh, his sister has just passed away and we're looking for somewhere to, to store his memory. And so this morning I've walked in with a uh, an apple box full of um, Type C flying helmets, uh, documents, letters, home uh, there's uh, souvenir pennants that uh, Arthur Robinson's uh, pinned his his uh, qualifications to um, evidence of his training with the Empire Air Training Scheme in Canada uh, all of the, the the things that he felt were precious but he wanted to post them home uh, he didn't get to bring them home because he's still on patrol he's he was missing in action uh on new year's eve 1944 when he was uh, a crewman on board a, a liberator uh flying out of india searching for a japanese submarine in the indian ocean and they didn't return from that patrol i think it's also interesting you just take a few steps back from that brad because this ended up in your possession because of something you did on anzac day last year in 20 was it last year 2020 that's right. I'll blame you. You, you. No, don't uh, blame me. You tell me what happened. <laughs> uh, you know, the, uh, you, the RSL, a whole group of people decided that Anzac Day should be, um, uh, you know, despite the pandemic, people should still get out and make a personal, personal statement about Anzac Day. And in in my case, um, on my front veranda, I was setting up a. Um, Thinking about Anzac Day, um, got out the shot flask, of course, and plenty of rosemary, uh, candles, and I was laying out my grandfather's RAAF uniform uh, on a chair. I was trying to recreate a, a, a painting done by a chap named Beatty, a Vietnam yep. veteran who had made a, a, a remarkable painting that's now in the collection of our National Memorial in Canberra uh, called Image for a Dead Man, where he folded up a, um, his own service dress, uh, draped it over the chair with a flag from his father's service in the Second World War. And I was putting all that stuff out on, the, uh, on, on my veranda and thinking about how I could make a personal statement, I guess, about Anzac Day. And, um, and John and Janet, my next-door neighbours, were coming, coming past, uh, back from the... the the um, IGA at the top of the street and um, asked what I was doing. You know, they, they weren't uh, particularly interested in, in Anzac Day. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was sort of outside their, you know, their, their area of interest. Um, 
but they, I, I explained that you know Anzac Day was coming up, and uh, and in my case, um, I'd always watched the march on television with with my grandfather, and he was in the RAAF, and and Janet said, oh, my, my, I had an uncle that was in the in the RAAF, and um, she, I th- I'm sure she was being polite and desperate to get home, but uh, you know. Uh, making a statement like that in front of me is clearly a trap. I got out my laptop and, and said, what was his name? And Arthur Robinson. So I looked up Arthur Robinson and there were 16 of them. And she said, oh, he was in the Air Force as well. So that trimmed the number to 10. And uh, she said, oh, but he was killed. And I thought, oh, why didn't we start with being killed? Because that immediately dropped the yeah. to, to 10 people. And by the time I'd read out three names, we'd identified one that had a, a family middle name. And so we were able to identify this fellow. And, and uh, Janet's auntie had uh, thought that her brother had died relatively, you know, it, um, had had been forgotten but and he died been alone. Here at the War Memorial, and, had he? And, and of course, you know, I was able to say, well, look, it, it he actually is on the memorial for the missing in Singapore uh, that he was a member of a, an eight-man crew that had four Australians. They died together, um, and so I, I wrote it all down. And uh, and uh, Janet said, oh, look, it's been circulated around the family, and we're all very, but we've got we've got a new fascination with 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 Arthur's life and death now, and uh, you know. Two year, nearly two years later, uh, she knocks on my door with his effects, Type C flying helmets, uh, the souvenir pennants, uh, a wealth of letters and documents relating to his, his life and the way that the family remembered him at the time, the, the press clippings that they snipped out of papers, trying see, to find out what happened to that aeroplane uh, on its last see, flight. See, Brad the historian, <laughs> Brad the historian has brought alive memories. We go back to that memory history again, to your what your auntie or yeah, mother yeah. said. Anyway, mm, mm. What, what are you going to do with this collection of stuff from World War Two? Well, look, I think it just fits so uh, comfortably into what we're trying to do here at the Anzac Memorial because, uh, you know, we're not a museum uh, of the Royal Australian Air Force. We are a memorial, a repository of people's memories. And um, so, you know, we're not going to have an aeroplane on, on display uh, for logistical reasons. But also, you know, what, what's most important is the personal effects and the personal stories that are connected to those objects. The, 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 the emotion, the, um, uh, the, the, the thought that we invest in these objects and and you know arthur robinson may be missing in the indian ocean for the last 80 years but when people see the things that he cared about you know he took uh, enough time to stitch his qualification badge on a on a souvenir pennant and send it home to his mum you yeah. know it's it's yeah. uh, that's the sort of thing that uh, uh will bring the will make sure that the memories survive for another generation. And, you know, you mentioned earlier uh, the, f- the family uh, that walked in with uh, medals and indeed a much more extensive collection uh, to a, a, a young airman named Francis Mathers. And he was awarded the Conspicuous Gallantry Medal, uh, an extremely rare award. Only 10 members of the Royal Australian Air Force earned the Conspicuous Gallantry Medal um, during the Second World War. Um, it, it, it sits between the Distinguished Flying Cross and Distinguished Flying Medal uh, and the Victoria Cross. Really? This is, you know, it's a near-miss VC. Uh, in Mather's case, um, 
he was flying a um, uh, a Lancaster um, the, in an RAF squadron um, on a bomb run uh, over the Ruhr Valley, trying to destroy the um, uh, Germany's ability to to wage war. This kid's just turned twenty one. And he's in charge of a huge bomber delivering uh, hundreds of pounds, indeed thousands of pounds of bombs, part of a bomber stream of hundreds of aeroplanes uh, flying through the night from air stations in around Britain to bomb the Ruhr to deprive the enemy of the ability to wage war. Tragically, of course, the consequence of that is massive losses amongst the German civilian population. And uh, so, you know, as much as we remember the young airmen that died during the war, we've, we've also got to remember that they were inflicting massive casualties on the enemy population. Mm. Um, but anyway, Mather's story, I mean, it's it's an adventure story in itself. The, 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 the bomber stream flying through the dark in these massive aeroplanes. Uh, he's coming in over the Ruhr at 19,000 feet. German anti-aircraft fire is exploding all around them. The aircraft's being buffeted. And just as they've got their bomb doors open, they're on their final bomb run. They've committed to, to dropping their bombs and the aircraft gets hit by flak twice. It knocks out one engine. The starboard outer goes. There's holes in the fuel tanks, so the aircraft's streaming fuel. But they drop their bombs. They get hit by a second time. The port inner, inner engine by this stage is gone. So two of the four engines are gone. The aircraft's losing. Three of its four fuel tanks are emptying themselves. They turn for home. They're losing height. Uh, This 21-year-old struggling with the controls because the ailerons have been hit. The aircraft's peppered with with holes. It really shouldn't have been airworthy. But the air crews stay with the aeroplane. He's ordering people to throw out anything, (laughs) anything they can possibly jettison to try and lighten the load. But they're losing height and they're losing fuel, and they're dropping, but he's trying to get, get the aircraft home, and they're down to about four or 500 feet by the time they, they make the European Channel coast. Dawn is rising in the east over the, over the waters, and they're still falling out of the sky. Suddenly, a Messerschmitt 110 comes out of, the, uh, out of the gloom, and it sees just how badly hit this bomber is. That German crew must have thought, these blokes are toast. We're, we're going to take them out with a single sweep. Flies past, and uh, of course, the Australians and the British crew are watching this thing, and thinking our lives are measured in seconds. Anyway, the German then strafes the aircraft, puts even more holes. But Mathers describes in a radio interview how one of his blokes was about to uh, jettison a piece of equipment and the Germans shoot it out of his hand, saves him the bother. Uh, according to Mathers. And at this stage, they realise their only hope of survival is the tail gun, but he can't speak. The enemy fire has severed the communications with the tail gunner. In the tail gun is a, a, an equally young tail gunner Scotsman named George Speedy, and they don't know whether he's alive or dead. And uh, so Mathers sends a couple of blokes back to the rear of the aircraft to try and get in. They open the hatch, discover Speedy's well and truly alive. He tells them to go away in no uncertain terms because he can see this Messerschmitt 10, 110 lining up on them, coming into about 300 metres behind the aircraft and before it opens up, Speedy gives him the bad news. Gets a burst into the fuselage of the 110 and it spears into the ocean. By this stage, they're limping over the uh, the white cliffs and they're too low for the crew to bail out. So Mathers says, brace yourselves, I'm going to try and land this air aircraft. We're too low for you blokes to to use your parachutes. He then discovers that his undercart has been shot away. And so he's got to land this aeroplane at several hundred kilometres an hour with the wheels up. And the aircraft's already full of holes. But he brings it in safely without any injury at all to the crew. A very, very well-armed, earned 
conspicuous that gallantry medal. Amazing story. Uh, great story. He and Speedy are immediately interviewed by the BBC, and there's a wonderful recording of that interview where Mathers says, oh, look, I'll hand over to my rear gunner, George Speedy. You may not be able to understand him because he's a Scotsman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just this great, these couple of youngsters that have survived this harrowing, harrowing time. Um, and, of course, tragically, six months later, the entire crew was lost yeah. over the same target and uh, they're buried in, in Germany. Um, but, you know, that the, 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 the family walked in with that medal, uh, with his flying log, with his photographs and, and with a, a sheaf of letters written home, uh, all of them addressed dear mum and uh, many of them almost shredded by, by the sensei. You know, they, as a, uh, you know they, they really look like the old piano rolls. There's so many holes in what the sensors cut out, but it's, it's a fascinating view into the life and, and death of a very gallant young airman, um, one of the 40% of the RAAF uh, who joined up during the Second World War and were sent through the Empire Air Training Scheme. Mm. Uh, the other 60% stayed home and defended Australia or served in the Pacific. Now that memory is alive and well here at the Hyde Park Anzac Memorial. How important then are these words, Brad? To the glory of God and in honoured memory of the men and women of New South Wales who gave their lives and in gratitude to all who left this state to serve the empire in the Great War, I unveil this Anzac Memorial, 1934. Mm. How important are those words? I, I think that they really sum up the mood of a community that needs to be reminded that so many of the people that they're passing in the street are still suffering, are still dealing with a grief that will never heal mm. and and that that grief needs to be validated, that mm. that these people did not die in vain. Um, and I guess how do we remember that 100 years on is, is, is a real challenge. How do we recognise? Uh, and, uh, and I think one of the great uh, statements by the Anzac Memorial uh, and those that designed it back in, in the 1930s is the statue sacrifice at the heart of the memorial because unlike other memorials around the country that show soldiers resting on their arms reversed or soldiers sitting in contemplation of their mates or soldiers in battle gear ready for, for action, sacrifice gives precedence, uh, precedence to the next of kin. The, the fallen soldier is being supported by his mother and his wife um, and and a female relative. Um, and so it's, you know, I think it's a really important statement um, that the, the, the suffering in the Great War is not confined to those in uniform. Those words for you who are listening were the opening on the 24th of November in 1934 and they were words uttered by Prince Henry. Brad... This place is an amazing place, uh, and no, notwithstanding the fact that you've been responsible for doing so much, these exhibits that you've mentioned today are going to be here. Uh, you've kept the memory alive. I really do appreciate and feel honoured to have been able to talk to you today. Sir, thank you for your time. Oh, look, um, thank you for, for your kind words, Gareth. Look, it, it really, I mean, I, we're only custodians. Um, there's, you know, it, really the, the, the thanks goes to those that have, have worn a uniform when, when Australia, they felt that Australia was threatened. 
Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.